Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I sound a bit loud. Turn me down just a bit. 1 Samuel chapter 15 as we continue our preface uh, look at 1 Samuel. As we are jumping through the first 15 chapters rather rapidly with three looks. First at Hannah, then last week we looked at Israel's demand and cry for a king. And now we look this morning at um, God's rejection of that king as we look forward next week, or actually two weeks from now, we'll get into the life of David uh, as we begin to look directly at him, what we can learn from David's life, how God moves through him and in him. First Samuel chapter 15 is where we're going to be. I'm going to read the whole text, so bear with me, 35 verses. It's what you call long. So read along in your own Bibles. As I read out loud, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way that when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. In verse 13, Samuel said to, came to Saul and said to him, Blessed be to you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to, to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of this spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given to it a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of the people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And, Saul, and Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother be, will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The word of the Lord, and we say praise be to God, even to this text. Challenge you to read this story to your kids every night this week before bed. (laughs) This is um, not for the reasons you'll think. As I read this and studied this, I, I think I, I came to a sense this week that I, I think this is one of the saddest stories of all of Scripture. Um, one of the saddest accounts that we find in all of Scripture because it's the story of how a man, Saul, the one who's supposed to lead all the people of Israel, how this man lost the voice of God. He lost the voice of God. Um, there is no judgment like God's silence. Hell will be a place that is devoid of the voice of God. And you know it. When your marriage ain't going right, when you've offended your wife, when you know you've really messed up, there ain't screaming and yelling. There's just silence. Silence. Saul has lost the voice of God in this text. At the very beginning of the text, and what we see in Saul's life is that God is speaking to Saul. He's communicating to God. Saul. We see here that God comes and commands him. He confronts him, that God convicts Saul of sin. But at the end, what we see is God's silence. So how does Saul, or why does Saul lose God's voice? That's the first thing I want us to look at, and we'll spend how, where we'll spend 95% of our time this morning, the, the reason why, and I'm going to start in an odd place this morning, in verse 17, the, the, the nature of the text builds up to verse 16 and 17, and, and the high point of the text emotionally, and if, even if you look at the literary, the structure of the text, is it centers, builds up to 16 and 17, and then flows out of 16 and 17. And here we get a sense of what is going on, and the heart of why Saul rejected the voice of God. And it's this. That Saul rejected the voice of God because the greatest desire of his heart is not to hear from God. But the greatest desire of Saul's heart is to be great in his own eyes. 
to be great in the eyes of other people. In verse 16 and 17, we see it. It's an odd place. Saul is actually talking. He's blame shifting for just a moment about the, the failures here to obey God's word. In verse 16, the high point emotionally is Samuel says, this is a rather emotional word for a prophet. He says, stop, enough. I've had enough of hearing your excuses, Saul. Stop. And he says, I'm going to tell you what the Lord has told me. And Samuel said this. And we get an insight into Saul's psyche from what Samuel says to him. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the heads, head of the tribe of Israel? Now you might think that there's not much to that, but if you actually understand the context of what's going on in 1 Samuel and who Saul is and get a better picture of who he is, this actually speaks volumes about who Saul is. You see, Saul is a man who I think you would see here as a man who is struggling with um, an insecurity problem. That Saul views himself as little and small. And there is no one who is more dangerous in this world than those who view themselves who are insecure men. I remember experiencing this with a guy that my sister, one of my sisters brought home. She was dating at one point. He was not a believer. And he was also like 5'6 and about a buck 10. And I, I, what, I, what I was most distressing was I was actually quite happy because then I could beat him up if something went bad. But my, my, first, my, my, my sister's first boyfriend was 6'5 and 280, and so that was a loss for me. But So I was happy with this guy, but I was actually quite displeased when I finally met him because what I found about him was he was an insecure man. And the insecurity did not come out in, in, in necessarily bravado. What it came out was he was always belittling her. Because insecure men are the men who have to try to find greatness in other places. They look at themselves and they see that they're weak. And this is actually who Saul is. You see, Saul, despite outwardly being a man of great stature, but despite outwardly being a man who has great good looks, despite outwardly having great victories early on in his kingship, is a man of deep insecurity. Inside, inside the body of this great warrior is a man who has a deep and desperate Napoleon complex. He is a little and weak man inside. And it's seen in a number of different places. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, when they are going to anoint Saul king over Israel for his essentially his inauguration, we see this, that he is a man who is fearful of the throne, that he is not trusting in God's provision for him. And so that when they go to inaugurate the king, they're missing something. They're missing Saul. And where is Saul? Saul is so petrified about this role of becoming king over Israel that he is hiding among the baggage and which everyone had brought and put in a tent to store during the inauguration. And he's a man that they had to drag out despite the fact that God had ordained him. Despite the fact God said, you are my man. And God had poured his grace upon him. What is Saul thinking about? His insecurities. His weakness. He's thinking about who he is. Now, insecure men, they have a great desire to cover over themselves. That's what that boyfriend of my sister's was doing, and we see this with Saul. You see in chapter 14, what's going to happen is that Saul, while he starts well in his kingship, things are going to begin to unravel rather rapidly. And Saul has been humbled, we see in chapter 14, by the Philistines for a time. And he is so angry at the rule and reign of the Philistines and the, the pestilence that the Philistines have in his life that he is so vengeful that he has to prove himself as a king that in his anger and his wrath and his vengeance, he isn't thinking properly. He's thinking out of his insecurity. And so he makes a rash vow. He tells all his soldiers that we will not eat or drink until we defeat the Philistines. Now, this is stupidity, right? Because that's what's the number one thing that a soldier needs before a battle. They need strength. They need energy. 
And yet he makes this petulant vow out of his vengeance and out of his insecurity. And when it is found out of his son, his own son, Jonathan, who isn't around here when, when Saul makes men take this vow, he doesn't know about it. Saul actually, with his manservant, goes up and takes out a citadel of the Philistines all by himself, wins a great, wins a great victory, and at the end of it, decides to have a little honey. And Saul finds out about this, and Saul is such an insecure man that he cannot handle the fact that his son, even if he didn't even know about the vow, he cannot handle the fact that his son has flaunted his authority and flaunted his rules, and so he's going to actually have his own son put to death until the army of Israel says, "Uh uh-uh, we ain't doing that. Saul, Jonathan's the best one around here, and so what we see is that Saul is so embarrassed by his son that he's willing to put him to death in order to cover over himself, to save face for himself, what Saul communicates to us is something in us. That when we are a people of deep-seated insecurity who are living in view of who we are, how we view ourselves, and thinking about what the world views about us, that our sense of significance, will, our insignificance and our insecurity will cause us to run around all sorts of places trying to convince ourselves and trying to prove to the world that we are indeed great. And when that becomes the focus of your life, Everything, it trumps everything else, including the voice of God. And that's what we see with Saul. We're gonna, I'm going to talk this morning essentially of three points on this head, major heading of the voice of God lost. But Saul loses the voice of God because he is seeking, his longing to be great in his own eyes and in the eyes of others leads him to do three things. And the first is this. Saul's uh, longing to be great in his own eyes leads Saul to disregard God's voice. We see this in verses 1 through 11. God comes to Saul through Samuel and says, I have a job for you to do. I have a mission for you to carry out. And my mission is this, in verses 1 through 3, is you're to go to the Amalekites and you're to utterly and absolutely destroy them. You're to wipe them off the face of the planet. Men, women, children, animals, no existence left of these people. Now, really quick, we have to address this, don't we? I'm sure I won't do it in a satisfactory manner for anybody here because here's the answer. This just disturbs us, and I want to say it ought to disturb us. It's meant to disturb us. The wrath of God is disturbing, you might have noticed. The wrath of God is disturbing. But we look at this and we hear this, and the God that we know, this seems frustrating. This sounds more like the voice of ISIS than the voice of a loving and steadfast and merciful God's. Why is God being so, quote-unquote, unmerciful here? Well, you have to understand the context. First, you have to understand the evil of the Amalekites. There is history here. In fact, Samuel talks about it here when he gives the order to Saul, that the Amalekites attacked the people of Israel as they're coming up out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 5, we see this. And not, it wasn't just the way that they picked a fight with Israel, but is the way that what they did is they would actually function like lions do around the pack of gazelles. That the way in which the Amalekites would do, uh, would do battle is they would do it unfairly. That they would find those, and here's this great caravan of Israel moving through the desert. And like, you know, if you've got a couple million people, you're going to have places where people are sick. You're going to have the old and the infirm. You've got families with children who cannot move as quickly. And you're going to find these disparate groups who begin to get separated from the, maybe the major band of Israel. Or on the outer parts for those who have been sent outside the camp because they have some sort of infectious disease. And so they have to wander and fall behind the group that is moving through the desert. And it was those people that the Amalekites would come in and they would take their supplies and they would put them to death. Men, women, children, they would slaughter the people of Israel who actually fell behind. This is the pattern of the Amalekites. And actually, if you want to read about the evil 
of the Amalekites, go to Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we see their description of the wars in which they raged and the atrocities that they committed. And yet God has been patient with them. God indeed, it says, Psalm 34 says, God is slow to anger. He is steadfast, he is gracious, and he is merciful. What we see here is that in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus 17, which give us the account of when the Amalekites attack Israel, that is some 300 years earlier. And ancient Near Eastern history would tell us that for the 300 years since then, the Amalekites have not changed at all. There are people who are essentially run around slaughtering the other people groups in Canaan and in the Sinai desert. And so Psalm 34 verse 6 talks about God being slow to anger and God being merciful. But verse 7 of Psalm 34 says this, but yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so yes, God has been merciful and he has been patient and he has been steadfast in his mercy and yet there does come a time in which god and the attribute and the beauty of his character of his wrath says enough enough and this is the day of reckoning that has come for the amalekites but i want you to understand this that this is not just a genocidal war for the greatness of israel this is not just slaughter for slaughter's sake this is not like our, the, you know, the Rwandan uh, genocide and the genocides that we see so much now are, are genocides of vengeance in which one people group seeks to rise up and take what they think is rightfully theirs by destroying the people who have been oppressing them maybe for a couple hundred years. That's not what's going on here. What God calls, there's a specific uh, technical word that Samuel gives to Saul here. It's the word harem in the Hebrew. The type of war that are supposed to go out, it's a just war or it's called a holy war. This is not to be like the wars of other nations because Israel should be different. What God is calling Israel to do and to be here is to be God's arm of justice to bring about his right wrath upon the Amalekites. Now, where do we see that? What are the implications of that for Israel? Well, the implications are this. Israel, from this war, unlike almost all other wars in history, Israel is going to win the victory, and yet they should not be able to capitalize on this war in one way at all. They are not to take the spoils of war. They are not to keep the king alive. They are not to take the people as slaves to serve them. These people, they are supposed to destroy them as an act of God's justice. But the people of Israel are not supposed to gain anything because this is an act of God's divine justice, not as a means of making Israel look great in the eyes of the world's. And so that's the actually the call here. It's different than necessarily the way we, the reasons why we carry out wars. And yet, what do we see Saul do? Does he obey God's law? Does he obey God's command here? Verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was valuable. Uh Uh-oh. It goes bad. In other words, they they, they do the very thing that God called them not to do. God had said, this is not to be like a war like all the other nations declare war. This is supposed to be a holy and just war. And therefore, you're not supposed to uh, gain from this war. And yet, what do we see? That Saul has said, he's actually flipped it on its head. He's made it an unjust war. He's made it not about the justice and the holiness of God, but instead has made it about his own personal agenda. And we see in the fact that he takes the lambs, he takes the sheep, he takes the oxen. It's about them. And we also see that he spares the life of Agag. Now, why would Saul have done that? Well, back then, if you had a great victory, you wouldn't make for yourself a cool little trophy. Like, you wouldn't go down to McEvers and make yourself a cool trophy and be like, you know, on this day in 2018, we slaughtered a people group. 
right? That, that's not what you would do. If you want to declare about how great you are as a king, your trophy would actually be the king of the nation that you defeated. That you would take that king into captivity, and about once a year you'd celebrate, you'd have a celebration for yourself, where you'd have a, an anniversary of the day that we beat the Amalekites, and you'd have a big parade, and you'd bring the king of the Amalekites out, and you'd bring him out in front of all the people, and, you'd go, and Saul would be able to go, look at me, I'm the king over kings. Aren't I great? You see what's going on here? See, that, does that, that desire to cover over his own personal insecurity, his desire to make himself no longer view himself as small, but to be viewed by the people in his nation and the nations of the world as great, makes him, brings him to the place where he's willing to disobey God's command in order to bring himself accolades and admiration in the affection of the people. That's the first thing we see. See, Saul in his pursuit and his, his deep desire to be great himself will dis, will dis, um, will, oh, disobey God's commands. But the second thing that leads to, though, is Saul's delusion about himself. Saul's delusion about himself. And here we see just a real brief lesson. Sin deludes you. And be kind to become great in your own eyes will delude you. Because what you will try to do is become great despite the evidence that you're not. And therefore, you'll be willing to lie to yourself and lie to God and lie to God's prophets and lie to the people around you. And that's exactly what Saul does. Saul does everything he can in verses 12 through 23 we're going to see in order to save face. He's unwilling to face up to the reality of who he is. He's unwilling to face up to his disobedience. He's unwilling to face up to the fact that he is responsible for this disobedience. And he goes to great lengths to delude himself about his greatness and his morality and his righteousness. Sounds like us. See, we will go to unbelievable lengths to keep from having to be confronted with our sin. To ignore who we are. To forget conveniently what we have done. And even when it is plainly in front of us. Let's go to a hyperbolic example. In the middle of Germany, there was a town called Odorov. And Odorov was the site in which was one of the worst death camps. It was only a couple miles outside of the city. And there, when Eisenhower and the U.S. Army liberated that city and liberated that death camp, they were so appalled. And in fact, George Patton was a part of the liberating um, army that came in there. And if you know anything about George Patton, he's not somebody who gets easily flummoxed. And yet Patton comes out through the city and goes to the gates of the death camps and refuses to go in because he's so nauseated by what he sees. So Eisenhower goes into the town and talks to the civic leavers and he particularly goes to the mayor and to the mayor's wife and he says this, we know that you knew what was going on here. You, there's no way you could not have known what was happening here. In fact, there's probably no way you could have not helped with what was going on here. And they claimed, all the townspeople claimed, no, 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 we didn't know. We had nothing to do with this. We didn't know this was going on. And of course, they, what they do is they, the U.S. Army brought them out and they walked them all through the death camps and they say, you will see, you'll see what has happened here. Not long after that, the mayor and his wife, because it was found through various evidence that they were involved in the death camp, that they had supported, they had participated in the activities there, and so they were being executed. And their last words were this, we didn't know, but we did know. We didn't know because we didn't want to know, but we did know. We did know. The ability of the human mind and the human spirit to reject what is obvious in our life, that is called delusion. 
And one of the worst and the most clearest passages about the depravity of mankind is says this in Romans 1. And Romans 1 essentially says this, that we know, and yet we hold down the truth of who we are. We hold down the truth of who God is, and we hold down and suppress the truth of who we are. Who we are in our weakness, in our sinfulness. And so what we see in Saul is we see Saul deluding himself. And I see five ways here. And maybe you'll see yourself in some of these. Five ways in which, isn't this a happy sermon? Five ways in which we delude ourselves about our sinfulness and our weakness. First, he deludes himself by presenting his partial obedience as full obedience. Do you see the ridiculousness of verse 13? Samuel shows up. Here Saul has, has built a monument to himself in, uh, in Carmel about how great he is, once again lauding himself and trying to add and be great in his own eyes. And then Samuel catches up to Saul at this camp. And what, is, what do you think is going through Saul's mind? Uh-oh. I got a lot of evidence here. I better get out there and, and try to smooth this over rather rapidly. And so what does Saul do? Verse 13 is utter ridiculousness. He comes out and Saul says to Samuel, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Listen, if you have children, you've probably experienced this. You ever caught your kid red-handed? They've got, they, you know, they have like sucker paste on their face. Their hand is in the, in the jar. And you walk in the room and they immediately go up and, and they're, they're panicked and they're flummoxed. And so they go, I wasn't in the candy. And as a parent, you go, well, of course that means you were in the candy. That's exactly what Saul does here. Here it is, he's trying to cover over his disobedience with what it appears by claiming to have obedience. And the second thing we see is this. Second, when confronted with the sin, Saul deludes himself by blame shifting. You see, in both verse 15 and verse 21, when Saul kind of gives, gives the account of what happened to, to Samuel, what's he say? He says, they, they saved Agag. They kept the best sheep and the oxen for themselves. The ever present guilty they not a me i'm taking credit for the victory but i'm not taking credit for this saul is absolutely responsible he refuses to take responsibility for what has gone on here and so he blame shifts and in fact this blame shifting is his oldest sin because what do adam and eve do when they when they are when they sin god comes to adam he says adam what's going on adam goes she made me do it and then god goes to eve and she goes the devil made me do it Blame shifting is his oldest time. It's how we delude ourselves into thinking that we have not had anything to do with the sin. Often we do this in such sophisticated ways. We'll often blame other people. That's right. It's my environment. My environment made me do it. I am not responsible for this. Third thing we see the way Saul deludes himself. Saul deludes himself by mitigating the seriousness of his sin. He mitigates the seriousness of his sin. And this is a tough one. So listen up. Saul, verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, king of Mamalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. What does he do? He defends his partial obedience by pointing to the ways in which he did obey. What's his line to Samuel? Okay, all right, okay, you got me. Agag is clearly still here. That's a problem. But I obeyed 98% of the way. I killed all the other people. Of the, I killed, slaughtered all the other Malachites. I brought your justice to bear upon them. Yes, I saved them out. Okay, that's a problem. But 98% of obedience, that's pretty good. That would get me an A. This is, I get an A for obedience. And here's what Samuel says to him in response. Look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Here's what Samuel is saying. To you and me. And this ought to 
frighten us. He's saying your 98% obedience is as evil and wicked as the sin of witchcraft. How's that taste? Samuel communicates to Saul that this half-hearted obedience and a religious approach to God that values sacrifice over actual obedience is as bad as witchcraft. So let me, let me just give you an image of what, we're, what God is saying about, about sin, about your half-hearted partial obedience. Let's say you came over to my house. You have dinner. We have a great time. And I say, you know, hey, let's go upstairs. I want to show you something. And I take you upstairs, and I pull out a pentagram. And we, I pull out some, put some candles out, and uh, we begin to do Satan worship. And we have sex with prostitutes, and we slaughter kittens, and we all offer ourselves to Satan. That's what God is saying your partial obedience is like. This is that, that, that kind of witchcraft, that this is the kind of, that your, your obedience, God wants to spit out of his mouth. That's how revolting it is to God. It is that disgusting and that foul. Yet there are all kinds of us in this room who are giving halfway obedience, 90% obedience like Saul, and it doesn't bother you at all. And it doesn't bother you, and this actually is so shocking to us because we've become so used to viewing our obedience in this way. And we're okay with it. So we say, man, I'm dating somebody I shouldn't. They're not a believer. I know, you know, if we got married, we we're unequally yoked. But it's okay. They're a good guy. 90% of obedience. It's a good person. We love each other. Cheating in a small way in your schoolwork, your taxes. Listen, I cheated on one, one test out of the five. That's 80% obedience. That'll get me at least a C in obedience. Like the sin of witchcraft. Something God has told you to do. Some sacrifice God has called you to make. And you say, ah, I'll do half the sacrifice. I'll give half. You know, you're commanded to forgive. You're commanded to forgive. And yet some of you are holding out bitterness and anger against somebody perhaps in this room. And God said, God says that's 98% obedience. Your unforgiveness is as the sin of witchcraft. You see, would you be willing to put your sins in the same category as Satan worship? I told you it's kind of tough. But here's the issue. God says, I want you to do this. I want you to obey me. <laughs> Don't give me half-hearted obedience. Sin is not wicked because of what you do ultimately. You've got to get that out of your mind. Sin is wicked because of who authority you reject. That the violation of sin is, is, the, is the, the grossness and the disgustingness of the violation is because of the holiness and the beauty of the one you violate. But that is what your sin is like. Fourth, Saul deludes himself with his religious sacrifices. Again, we go to verse 20 and 21. And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction. To do what? To sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel, don't you see? Don't you see? I disobeyed for God. Don't you see, we kept these animals because, look, aren't we, we're so religious that we thought, these, these sheep are so great, wouldn't God like us to sacrifice them for him? And here's Samuel's response in verses 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the word? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen is better than the fat of rams. In other words, he's saying, God doesn't want your daggum sacrifices. He wants your obedience. Is God excited about your token offerings to him? 
Because here's the reality of how so many of us view our lives. We think this way. I, okay, I, okay, we're like Saul, and Saul goes, okay, okay, okay we didn't quite obey, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice for you over here, and that should cover my disobedience over here. And that's how we do it. Okay, I've got this area of my life in which it's full of sin, and I'm not rooting it out, and I'm not fighting against it, and yet I'll do this over here because that'll help me cover and not think about that sin over there. Me and God are good, right? Me and God are good. And what you do when you, when you do this is, one, you once again mitigate how, how evil sin is because you think that your sacrifices over here can cover over your rejection of the authority of a holy God over here. It's not the way it works. Religious service is one of the most often used means of saving face publicly, but in the end, it does nothing but delude us, delude us that we're okay with God, that we don't need God, and that actually, we're religiously, we're great in our own eyes. Let me give you this illustration. Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliott tells about her little brother, Tommy, to help kind of describe this the way we often view these things is this. Is there, they had a rule in their house, so they had a, a bunch of paper bags. You know, you get from the grocery store, and then you stack them in the one or the pa- plastic bag. You have all the other plastic bags inside the one plastic bag. And they, as little kids, would get them out, and they'd play with them. And the one rule was you can get them out anytime you want. You can play with them, but you had to put them back. And well, little Tommy one day uh, played with the plastic bags and then decided he was done, but then put them away, as his parents had instructed, and began to go and play at the piano, as he loved to do. And he was playing beautiful hymns to Jesus. Wonderful hymns. And his dad came in and said, Tommy, you're not obeying. And Tommy said, but I'm playing beautiful worship music to Jesus. And his dad quoted this verse. Tommy, it is better to obey than sacrifice. What are the sacrifices that you're using to cover over your disobedience in other areas? Where are you playing hymns to Jesus in order to cover over the fact that you've disobeyed him in the kitchen? Fifth and finally, Saul deludes himself with false repentance. He deludes himself with false repentance. You see this in verse 24 and 25, and I'll drop down and see it again, verse 30 and 31. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Okay, he's confessing sin. He's been convicted. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now here's the question. Is this repentance? You play the pastor. Saul comes into your office, and he says these things. I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Let's go make sacrifices together. Is this repentance? I'm going to say no, it's not repentance, and I think there's two reasons why, two bits of evidence to look at. One is Saul's life doesn't change. The pattern in Saul's life from this time out is that Paul, Saul is constantly rejecting God's commandments and God's voice in his life. That's one thing. You see, because repentance is not just a confessing that I've broken God's law. Many of you can do that. Many of us can acknowledge that we've broken a law. 
so that we're repentant of it. And that repentance means turning away from it. But the second thing within the text, here's the evidence we see here. That Saul, and the evidence is that Saul asked Samuel to go with him to worship. Now you have to understand what is going on here. What Saul is asking Samuel to do is to go and to carry out what is called the national sacrifice. This is what they would do after a victory like this, after a battle. They would go and thank God and give sacrifices. And what Saul wants, despite the fact that he has disobeyed God, despite the fact that God has said, I'm rejecting you as king over Israel, what Saul wants is he wants Samuel to come and he wants Samuel to validate his kingship. Because if you have God's holy man with you, that looks good for the photo op. Samuel thinks I'm a good guy. Samuel approves of my actions. Samuel went with me to sacrifice. This is actually made most clear in verse 30. When Saul says this, and it shows what Saul is actually after. Saul repeats his request for Samuel to come with him to the national sacrifice. And he says this, yes, I've sinned, but come and honor me now before the elders and all the nation of Israel. What does Saul care about most? His sin or the fact that Samuel would reject him and therefore Saul would lose face? We put it this way. Maybe you talk, you say you talked about this with your kids. Do you care more about your sin or do you care about the consequences of your sin? You see, Saul once again shows here that what he is after more than anything else is to appear great in the eyes of other people. That he would look moral. That he would look like he's got political power. That he's got God's holy man approving of him. Saul is not worried about his sin. He's worried about the consequences of his sin to his political career. So true repentance is a repentance that grieves not over not over the consequences of sin, but it grieves over the sin itself. Are you broken of your sin? This is a false repentance. And when we carry out in false repentance, we do nothing but lie to God and delude ourselves. Now, because of this, because of Saul's unwillingness to heed the voice of God, because when God comes and commands and confronts and convicts, ultimately there are consequences that lead Saul to lose the voice of God. He leads into God, he becomes greater, more and more distant from God. And that's the last thing I want us to see, Saul's distance from God. Because of his pursuit of brightness in the eyes of others, in his own eyes, he becomes distant from God. We see this in a number of places. There's actually a progression in which God and Saul become more and more separated that first there's relational separation or relational sorrow. We actually see this in this strange verse in verse 11. When Samuel, when God comes to Samuel and tells him the disobedience of Saul. And what, is Saul, or what does God say? I regret that I have made Saul king over Israel. He's going to repeat it again back in verse 35. At the very end of the passage. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now for many of this room that sounds rather confusing. Particularly because in verse 29, Samuel says to Saul, God is not a man that he regrets. So, okay, one one real quick thing. This is a deep hermeneutical interpretive measure, okay? The guys who write the Bible aren't idiots. And so when they say in one verse, God regrets, and then they say in another verse, God doesn't regret, they must be talking about regret in two different ways, in verse 29, it says God doesn't regret in that God doesn't change his mind. It doesn't like, wasn't like God is looking at Saul and Saul's failure, and one of the other members of the fraternity is going, you know, we should have seen that coming. We should, we, I mean, we know all things that are going to pass, so we should have kind of checked out what's going to happen with Saul. No, that's not how God functions. God knows everything that's going to come to pass. God doesn't change his mind like you and I change our minds. But what we see here when he talks about regret is God has sorrow over Saul's sin. In other words, he is sorrowful over the Saul is ruling over Israel, and this is a man who won't listen to God's commandments and God's voice. 
So there's relational separation. God is sorrow. There's relational brokenness there. Then we see at the end of verse 23, it gets worse because Saul will not heed God's confrontation through Samuel and God's conviction. And so it says three times Samuel is going to tell Saul, God has rejected you as king over Israel. Now, I actually want you to see here that in this judgment, there is grace. Because in chapter 14, there's a, there's a movement of God's judgment, God's consequences in Saul's life in order to try to awaken Saul to what's going on here. In chapter 14, when Saul has disobeyed God, God doesn't remove Saul and reject Saul as king. There he says, Saul, your children will not take on the reign of kingship over Israel. So that's consequence one. Saul, you're, you're not listening to my voice. Okay, because of that, here's the consequence. Your children won't sit on the throne. Now Saul disobeys again in chapter 15. He won't listen to God's convicting voice. Okay, Saul, here's the temporal consequence. You're going to lose the king. I'm going to reject you as king over Israel. Now, has he said, Saul, I've rejected you completely? No. What, what, is, what is God doing by bringing these kind of this growing greater degrees of temporal consequences into Saul's life? He's trying to convict Saul of his sin, This is graciousness on God's part. He doesn't simply reject Saul entirely, but he's actually trying to bring consequences into Saul's life such a degree that he wakes him up and says, I'm going to return and restore myself to the Lord. See, we we often hear people who come and confront us and tell us about the problems in our life as being mean and evil people. You see, was Samuel being kind and nice in these words? I mean, Samuel says, he tears his clothes, and Samuel uses it as an illustration. He's like, this is what's going to happen between you and the kingdom. Samuel three times, very boldly and blatantly and directly tells Saul that God is going to remove him as king. Is, is, is Samuel just being un, not nice? No, he's not being nice. But he's being gracious. He's trying to awaken Saul to what's going on here, that he is moving more and more away from the Lord. But in the end, Saul rejects God's commandments. Saul rejects God's confrontation. Saul rejects God's conviction. So finally we see at the end that if you silence, if you reject God's voice enough, eventually God grows silent. God stops speaking. Verse 34 and 35 is where we're at. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So I said this is the saddest book of the Bible, one of the saddest stories in the Bible for a reason. Because what we see here is that what God has done by Samuel being separated from Saul. This is less about geography. It's that Saul will never hear the voice of God through the mouth of Yahweh's prophets. He will no longer hear from God himself. And in fact, we're going to see that this becomes so unbearable and so distressing to Saul that in one of the last scenes of Saul's life, what does he do? He goes to a witch, the witch of Endor, and he says, Samuel has died at this point. He says, conjure up Samuel because I want to hear the voice of Samuel. He's lost the voice of God in losing the voice of Samuel. All Saul has is the unbearable silence of God. That's all that's left. You see, there is, a, there is a point where if you repeatedly reject God's voice, you will suddenly find yourself unable to hear the voice of God anymore. That God will eventually allow you, give you over to the hardness of your heart. When you refuse to obey the word, you will eventually lose the ability to hear the word at all. And one of the last scenes of Saul's life, we're going to see here, that he is a man who is silent with God. There is no relationship. And not only that, but even the Lord is sorrowful. 
God is silent. There's no relationship between Saul and God. And even it says, repeats there again, that the Lord regretted that he has made Saul king over Israel. Here it is at the very end of the story. Not only is God silent in regards to his relationship with Saul, but God is sorrowful himself. Listen, that's a sad story. The story ends with the loss of silence and this sorrow. Now, here's the question we could ask in regards to our overall series in 1 Samuel. Why in the world did God have Saul become king anyways? I mean, couldn't we have saved a bunch of time if he had just gone straight to David? Where things start to get good? I mean, it would have saved us the last three weeks. That would have been nice. Why, does he, why do we have the first 15 chapters? Why do we have this Saul character? Well, we might remember last week, why does God give Israel a king? To give them a king to show them what the king like the nations is like. As a means of judgment, it is clear that God selects him to be king over Israel so that he can show them that Saul is exactly like the king of the nations. He's insecure, he's petty, he's selfish, he's vindictive, he's unjust, he's brutal, he longs to be praised. Sounds like the rulers of this world. That's the kind of king that Saul is, like the king like all the other nations, but what First Samuel is saying is there is a king. Anybody who's reading this knows in First Samuel, the original readers would have known David is coming. Now, here's the, here's the issue. You look at David's life and Saul's life, and you, you look at David's sins. David's sins appear a lot worse. Why has David not received the silence of God? Because the main difference between Saul and David is this. It's because David knew where to reclaim the voice of God, and that is at the foot of grace. Because the difference between Saul and David is that time and time again, when, Saul, when David sins and sins big, and God sends his prophet Nathan to convict and confront Saul, what, or David, what happens? David cries out to the Lord. He repents of his sin. He throws himself at the grace of God. You see that in places like Psalm 51. And so if you want to be restored to the voice of God, then you must look beyond David. And you must look to the one to whom David looked forward to. To the one who extended to us grace. And here's where we find the voice of God found once again as we come to a close. The high point of this text, we saw it earlier, is verse 17. The issue with Saul is that he sought greatness instead of seeking grace. Verse 17 is this. Samuel says this to Saul. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Why was Saul made king? Because he was naturally such a great guy? Because he was so powerful and so moral and so righteous? No. He, God made him king simply because of God's grace. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that Moses goes into great detail to make sure that the people of Israel understand this. Israel, I'm going to use you to be my means of justice in this world. I'm going to make you great. Why? Because you are so righteous and holy and so wonderful. And God goes out of his way to essentially demean Israel and says, no, you are one of the smallest of all peoples. You are worthless. You had nothing to offer me, and yet I have made you great. Why? Because I love you. Not because there is something worthy inherently in you or acceptable inherently in you, but simply because I have set my affection upon you. Too often in our own, because of our, the arrogance of who we are, that the longing and the desire of our heart is to be loved because of how great we are. But listen, that will lead you to a place of insecurity always in your relationship with people and with God himself. You know, one of the ways in which I know my wife loves me is not because I'm so great. It's when at my worst, she has loved me. 
Now, what that does, when you have somebody who loves you, not because you are worthy and acceptable, it actually puts you in a place of what? Security. The very thing that Saul is missing. You see, the thing that you need in order to not pursue the greatness in the eyes of this world, but is, is to pursue the grace of God that tells you that you are loved, not because of how great you are, but simply because God has placed his affection upon you. And so the difference between Saul and David is that you would run to the grace of God. And what is the grace of God? How do we get it? The one who is the anti-Saul has bought it for you. You know what grace? There's a great acronym. Grace. God's, God's riches at Christ's expense. You want to have the riches of God's voice again speaking into your life? You want to hear God? You want to hear God's commands and hear God's conviction and hear God's confrontation and you want to hear God's love over you? Then, my goodness, you must run to the grace of Jesus and must look to the one who has purchased grace for you. And it was the perfect, the better Saul, the one who was the antithesis of Saul. You see, Jesus came, and is he disobedient like Saul? No, he's perfectly obedient. And yet, and yet he still pours himself out as a sacrifice. Saul looks to sacrifice to cover over his disobedience. Jesus needs no sacrifice. So why did he pour out a sacrifice? So that he may cover over you. So that you might once again hear the voice of God in your life. So the silence of God would not reign over you, but instead you'd hear the voice of God who speaks to you who you are. And how, does he, how do we get that? Because on the cross and in the garden, did Jesus have the voice of God? No, he lost God. He lost the voice of the Father. He got silence so that you and I may restore to the one who speaks over us his deep affection and love for us. Listen, true greatness True greatness does not come by running around to the things of this world seeking to make make you great in your own eyes. True greatness comes when you throw yourself, when you realize how little you are, and you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. We end with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because the place that we need to go is with one another. The place where you're going to be reminded of this is you need Samuel friends in your life who communicate to you about the need to go to the gospel. And here's what Bonhoeffer says. He said, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. Christians may be left to their loneliness because though they have fellowship with one another as devout people, they do not have fellowship as sinners. It is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the religious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner. You're a great, big, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to hear the voice of God who speaks his love over you. Let's go to the voice of God now. Let's cry out for him to speak to us. Lord, oh Lord, we thank you that um, um, from this text, as hard as it is, that Lord, there's hard things that we have to hear here, that in that is a means of your grace, that God, you continue to speak to us with your commandments. You continue to come to us with your conviction. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fall in this place to convict hearts. To bring us to repentance over the ways that we're running from you and seeking to simply make ourselves look good by our own standards. Turn us back to you, God. May we be a people in faith who then run and throw ourselves at the cross of Jesus, crying out for grace. And then, Lord, as you tell us in Romans 8, Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit who would cry out within us, who would communicate to us the voice of God from within, who says, you are my child, and you have the love of God the Father. Oh, God, would you do that in this room? Would you fall on these people and on my own very heart? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.